Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Hello, I'm Jean Meserve, and welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. Jeff Stein is enjoying a well-deserved break this week, but he has left us an interview about China's theft of American military technology and what artificial intelligence and quantum computing may add to the mix. So we're at this new frontier of espionage that I think is just fascinating. And so these fighters and, and, and other aircraft we're seeing in many ways are the posters of, of what happens when the Chinese steal stuff from you know, the US and the West. But we're also at the dawn of this other era that's happening at the same time that, that also, of course, has a bearing on that. It's really interesting. That was August Cole, author and non-resident fellow at the Scowcroft Center. We'll hear more from him later in the broadcast. But first, who doesn't like a good spy yarn? Fictional spies intrigue us, whether we're watching Carrie Matheson on television's Homeland, drinking in the latest James Bond film in a theater, or lying on a beach reading about the latest exploits of Daniel Silva's Gabriel Alon. Do these portrayals that we enjoy so much bear any resemblance to reality? We pose the question to John Taylor. He worked in the British Foreign Service since 1971 and on retirement set up his own training company to train intelligence and security services around the world. He is co-author of the book, The Psychology of Spies and Spying, Trust, Treason, and Treachery. It's, it's a difficult question to ask and answer, Jean, because I mean, this, there is a lot in the television, and particularly in some books and literature, uh, that you know we we recognise and say, yeah, yeah, that's okay. But I have to say, uh, you know, of the intelligence officers I've met, you know, not much of it. But we still enjoy the fiction and the TV and and things. But there are one or two exceptions. You know, there are some. Um, you know, Tom Clancy wrote very well about uh, intelligence. Uh, Ryan is a very believable analyst. He's not really an operations officer, though the theatre obviously make him so. Um, I think in, in the UK, we have people like Alan Judd, who represents uh, all sides of intelligence extremely well. Um, I'm, I'm one of those on the critical side of people like John le Carre, um, because it's all about betrayal and dark side stuff. And, you know, quite honestly, in my experience, it's not a bit like that. It's about trust. It's about building relationships. The name of your book is The Psychology of Spies and Spying, Trust, Treason and Treachery. And you just mentioned trust. And to most of us, we're like, what? It is about treason. It is about treachery. What does trust have to do with it? Well, trust is the mindset right from the beginning right through to the end I, I, of course you can always look at intelligence failures and there there has been some breakdown usually of trust but in the very best cases that you look at whether it's american or, or indeed the russians uh, kgb the uh, svr now um you know it's about establishing a very strong relationship between the case officer and what we call the agent the intelligence officer and the source 
Um, and if that trust doesn't exist, then a number of things happen. You know, you're going to get bad information. The agent isn't going to trust the case officer, and therefore the agent is, is always going to be worrying about something bad happening to him. I'm not saying these things don't happen. I'm just saying that in, in I think, the best uh, intelligence services and the best agencies and the best cases, there is enormous trust between the agents and the case officer, the case officer who operates on his own. You know, in most businesses or commercial organizations, you know, at the beginning of a career, the junior will be accompanied by a senior. That doesn't happen in this world. In this world, the junior intelligence officer operates on his own. Therefore, his boss has to trust him. Politicians have to trust the intelligence agencies. And without that, the whole system falls down. So when handlers are targeting someone to be a potential spy, what are they looking for? They're looking for, well, first of all, primarily, that they have intelligence. That is, you know, and that's one of the odd things. Again, you know, if you compare it to any company, you recruit people on the basis of their skills, their qualities. Uh, some people call them competences. Uh, an agent is only recruited because he or she has access to intelligence. Therefore, they come in all shapes and sizes. And we kind of call say, well, you know, ideally, what I'd like is someone who's very discreet, someone who's quite clever, don't have to be super clever, but reasonably clever, and someone who's comfortable with this double life. Um, but unfortunately, you know, they're not selected like that. If, on the other hand, you're talking about intelligence officers, the, the, the employees of an agency, then, of course, you know, you do have the list of skills which will include quite how they've got to be quite clever, they've got to be open minded, they've got to be conscientious. And I think most importantly of all, they've got to be inquisitive. And I'm talking, you know, so open minded really is what and I'm talking about the case handlers, because there's a whole different lot with analysts and surveillance operators and uh, technical experts as well, but different skills for them. Getting back to the traits of spies, are there certain things they absolutely would avoid? Are there certain red flags that go up? Uh, yes, there certainly are. Um, and I think each agency uh, has a different uh, sort of set of values. I know that in, in it, for example, the CIA are very uncomfortable if anybody is found to be lying to them because they put them all through a polygraph. Um, in other agencies, certainly in the United Kingdom, we don't do that. Um, we don't like people who lie to us, but, you know, the world is made up of funny people, you know, and there are sociopaths and people who think they want to improve. But that's the skill of the case officer. So to answer your question more directly, we don't like sociopaths because they have no guilt. They don't, they don't respond to any of the norms. And you can't, we talked about trust. An out-and-out -out sociopath is difficult to trust because they are so determined to bring about their own or what they think it is for themselves. And I think, and each country will be different about this, but you know, I think that if an agent a spy is involved in serious criminality, uh, then that would rule him out. I mean, you know, I would put a very, very firm red line about paedophiles, you know, I just wouldn't have anything to do with them. Um, but you know, if somebody's had a parking or speeding fine, that's not a problem. 
a little bit of theft. You know, some of these people in the terrorist world, you know, they have been involved in some of these criminal acts. So there's a little bit of judgment in those areas that we have to we have to make. But there isn't a, like a Myers-Briggs test that you <laughs> check off boxes to figure if somebody's suitable to do spying for you. Uh, certainly not. No, but uh, what uh, all training departments do now um, is that agent handlers learn about these uh, the different psychological traits. Uh, and you mentioned Myers-Briggs. I mean, nothing wrong with Myers-Briggs per se, but most agencies will not use Myers-Briggs because Myers-Briggs does not measure one of the things that is critical, and that is the ability to, uh, to with withstand stress, neur neuroticism. So we look at the big five, and in, in our book, we, we go, we look at the psychometric testing, and we use the big five, um, which Myers-Briggs carries four of them, introvert, extrovert, agreeableness, openness, and conscientiousness. But what he doesn't do is neuroticism, and that is very important. So spy, um, agent, sorry, agent handlers are taught how to judge people's personality, but sadly, we can't pose a questionnaire on all of them. We have to do it by remote, uh, remote uh, sensing possibilities. The popular belief is that there are four things that motivate people to spy. Money, ideology, coercion, and excitement. Mice, yeah. as it's called. Yeah. Is that accurate? Is that a complete picture? Um, it's not one we use. It's not one that's used in the United Kingdom. We're, we're aware of it, of course. Um, I like to break it down into three areas. There is uh, the, the personal area. You know, there's a person who um, feels he wants excitement, wants money. Uh, they have a strong belief system, ideology, if you like. So there's that group all about the individual that makes him or her want to do something. There is a second element, which is, I think, present in almost every case I can think of, and that is resentment. It's about, and I'm, and I don't, um, it's about people who feel um, angry or unhappy with their employer or the organisation. I mean, it's fake. You know, if I, I can imagine going around cocktail parties in you know, diplomatic parties. And if I meet, say, a Russian or Iranian who says, I've just got, I've just had a fabulous day. My boss is really good. The ambassador's a super person. And now I'm going to move on. I'm going to talk to somebody else. But, but you know, if I meet someone, you will not believe what happened to me. Suddenly that person's got a really good friend and I'll talk to him. So that's the second element, which I think is, exists in, in virtually every case I've come across. And there's a third element which is about the relationship between the handler and the, and the spy, the agent. And that's quite critical. Now, in the book, there, I, I give a number of case studies, and there's, there's one or two. For example, Hansen, who um, uh, you'll know, he was an FBI officer. He never met his case handler, KGB officer concerned. Uh, he insisted on doing it all by dead less boxes, by uh, dead drops, I think you call them brush contacts, those sorts of things. Never met him. That's very, very unusual. You mentioned the, the case studies that are, that are in the book. Are there one or two of these individuals who really <laughs> intrigue you? I think the one that 
I intrigues me the most is a man called George Blake. He spied way back in the after the Second World War. I cannot work out his motivation. He he comes from a Jewish background. He was born and brought up in Holland. Uh, he had a relatively comfortable upbringing. Second World War happened. Uh, you know the Nazis came along. He was threatened because he had a Jewish sort of background. He had a British passport. He escaped, having done some good work for the resistance. He very dare, very bravely travelled across France and into Spain. Got to Britain, where his mum had been looked after, and his sister and family were being looked after by the British. He joined the Royal Navy. You know, was doing a really good job, and then got brought in as a as a not. I mean, he was British, but you know, he was born and brought up in Europe, and then he gets brought into this sort of. SIS into MI6, the sort of, I don't know, the, you know, the, the heart of the establishment. So he's got to be accepted. And yet he rejected all of that because he said he didn't like the way that the Americans were bombing North Korea because he was posted. That's when he decided to go. Well, yes, that's a reason. But is that a good enough reason? So he to... ended up spying for the Russians, correctly, or the Soviets. Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. Yes, he offered his service to the KGB when he was a uh, prisoner of war uh, held by the North Koreans in Korea in the uh, late 40s. He stayed in MI6. He, um, he told uh, his KGB officers all about the Berlin Wall, which was something the Americans, you, you guys, and, and we were putting a lot of effort into. Gave them enormous amounts of counterintelligence uh, information. A lot of people died as a result of the intelligence because it gave away the identities of agents and things like that. Um, and, then, and then we caught him. Uh, I, there's a funny story I've been told. I think it's true. I'm pretty sure it's true. Um, Sir George Blake was suspected. He was brought into um, one of MI6's sort of uh, offices and uh, some of our best interrogators sort of were there to meet him. They said, George, come in, sit down. We're here because we think you're a, Ru a Russian agent. And he said to them, actually, yes, I am. And that was the end of the conversation. The problem was that in, in our system, we can't arrest somebody unless you've got a policeman. The police are the only people who can arrest. And so they said to George, well, oh, OK, well, what are you planning to do tonight? And he said, oh, I'm going back to my mum's. And they said, oh, OK, well, could you come back here at 10 o'clock in the morning, by which time we'll have a member of the police special branch to arrest her. I mean, how British is that? And he came along next day. Then he went to prison. And then he got out of prison, escaped from prison, and found him, got himself back to... Uh, uh, Soviet Union, and he died uh, six months ago, I think. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's astounding. Yeah. That's astounding. An escape artist to boot. You that's mentioned, uh, you know, the KGB in Russia. And so talk about Vladimir Putin, who, of course, oh, okay. worked for the KGB for years. Yeah. Yeah. There is one very disturbing aspect to Putin's character, and that is paranoia. This means he does not accept uh, defeat. He will not accept defeat. Um, he believes, as we well know, you know, Russia is pretty paralyzed, but that NATO, America particularly, are all lined up against him. He believes, and, and Russia believes. But if he is defeated, as we hope he will be, we hope the Ukrainians uh, become 
stronger, much as a result of American and British and, and other people supplying them with serious weapons. And Putin gets pushed back. That's going to be a very dangerous time. Then he's going to lash out. And that means that we have to put uh, things like nuclear weapons and more extreme methods back onto the table. And we cannot just say, oh, it wouldn't be rational because we're not dealing with He's rational, but with a very strong paranoid uh, element. I've talked to some other experts about Putin who have said uh, some of this has to do with his family experience, his upbringing. Some of it has to do with his culture. Do you find as you look generally across the field of people engaged in espionage that those things are a critical factor? Uh, uh, very much so. I mean, on the question of Putin's family, it's very interesting. I mean, he hates... His mother and his father were very loving. You know, they, he was not, the trouble was that they weren't very physically fit. His father was uh, injured during the war. His mother could barely walk. I mean, his birth in 1952 was described as something of a miracle, but they lived on the fifth floor of a block of flats in down in a part of Leningrad, as it was then, St. Petersburg now, that wasn't very rich. So he learned his skills you know, on, on the street. He was a fighter. He was a little small man, five foot six and a bit. Uh, so he's a small person. So there was a tendency to bully him. He learned how to cope with that you know, by fighting back. And he learned how to do judo. KGB taught him about the importance of information. But he was never a very successful KGB officer. You know, he, he goes through Leningrad. Moscow is where you want to be. He, he joins the second chief director, which is counterintelligence. He then gets, says, I want to go overseas. So he goes into the first chief directorate, which is the overseas element. And they post him where? Dresden in East Germany. It's part of the communist empire. And this is not, you know, a high-flying post. And like many of his colleagues, you know, Washington and London, Paris, all of those places. So he was never a high-flyer. And all of this built up his paranoia. People were against him and things like that. To answer your, so that's about Putin, so I can go further on that, but, but about, is that what we look for? We are very interested in people's uh, upbringing, their family circumstances. Of the 12 case studies we had, nine of them had serious uh, uh, problems during their early years. So that is a very important element. And the interesting thing is that if they are, they have this sort of uh, difficult time, if they are looked after by a loving aunt, school teacher, whoever, they become much stronger. But if they're abandoned, then, then they become dangerous. Uh, so no, we're very interested in, in their upbringing and their training, obviously, in the whole thing. Technology is clearly transforming the whole art of espionage. Will human officers and agents become less important as a result? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, the um, what goes on in, in a leader's mind and a military commander's mind cannot be deduced uh, by analytical processes. I, I, I'm full of admiration of our analysts. They are the brains of the organization, don't get me wrong. But they need intelligence. They need information, secret information. Um, now, that can come from technology. Uh, but it will also come from human beings. And there's absolutely no sign that we can do without it. Um, what we should do is work together so that 
you know, that one informs the other. Technology can help us identify which agents are more likely to respond to a request from us, which people. And also, you know, we would uh, we need technology to overcome um, some of our tradecraft. So how do we travel across borders using a, a, an alias passport? You know, technology makes that very, very difficult now. So we but we use technology to get over it. So it's a sort of cat and mouse game. We get a little bit better at this and then the security people get a bit better. So we have to up our game, you know, those sorts of things. So the two will go hand in hand, but work much more closely now than they did 50 years ago. So looking forward, you don't think the fundamentals are going to change? Uh, the fundamentals won't change. Technology has been there for decades and decades. Uh, you know, it's, it's always secreting and listening into conversations and all of that kind of thing. It's been there for centuries, well, not quite centuries for some of the more technical things. And so, uh, yes, technology is going to advance. But actually, you know what, I think we've got a lot better uh, uh, human sources. I mean, the book, it's no mistake that this book is called The Psychology of Spies and Spies. Psychology is a science. I'm not a psychologist. I work with them and I love working with them. I tremendous insights. I just wish I knew now. So I wish I knew 50 years ago when I began this game, what I now know about psychology. Psychology is a science gives us tremendously good insights into people and how to work with these people so that we get a really good casework. That was John Taylor, author of The Psychology of Spies and Spying, Trust, Treason and Treachery. Coming up on Spy Talk, an examination of how China is so successful stealing American military technology. And a reminder, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and subscribe to our podcast. We'd love your feedback and ideas. I'm on Twitter at Gene Meserve. Jeff Stein is at Spy Talker. A principal responsibility for the spy services of any top tier nation worth the name is to find out what kind of sneaky new military technology an adversary is developing and, if possible, steal it. China seems to have triumphed in that area. Even casual observers have noted how China's best new warplane, the J-20 stealth fighter, has a startling resemblance to our top-of-the-line F-35. Likewise, China's main military transport plane and its airborne early warning and control aircraft look like knockoffs of our own, and so on and so forth, right down the line. With China ever more challenging America's longtime military dominance in the Pacific, we thought it would be timely to follow up on China's military espionage tricks with journalist August Cole. He's a former defense industry correspondent with The Wall Street Journal, but more importantly for our subject today, he is co-author of the gripping futuristic techno-thriller Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war, a war with China, he means. My co-host Jeff Stein left behind this interview with Cole before going on summer leave. August Cole, welcome to Spy Talk. Now, we've all seen the photos of China's latest war plane, the uh, J-20. I think you can explain to our readers that this is just not a coincidence that the J-20 looks an awful lot like our F-35, right? 
China's military hardware increasingly bears a close resemblance to the latest and greatest U.S. weapon systems, and nowhere is that more true than with their fifth-generation jets. Aircraft like the J-31 are not just cousins of the F-35, but literally siblings, at least how they appear from, a, from an outward perspective. Similarly, the J-20 is uh, clearly inspired by not just the F-35, but the F-22 Raptor, which is you know, arguably the most advanced fighter uh, design in the world, even if it's older than the F-35. And, and this is, I think, as much a reflection of China's desire to field a, an advanced fighter force, but also to show the world that it has a world-beating military. China's in a hurry to you know, demonstrate that it is a nation to be reckoned with, and there's no better example than these jets. So um, let's go back to some elementals here. They've stolen lots of our uh, weapon systems designs, uh, and we can get back to that for a minute, but let's talk about the J-20 again. How did they get the designs? Did they bribe uh, U.S. defense officials and, uh, you know, uh, 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 military uh, contractors? Or did they steal the designs? They hack into the systems? What happened with the J-20? These campaigns to get access to U.S. and, and allied military technology are multifaceted. We don't quite have the, you know, Cold War a briefcase full of, uh, you know, mimeographed or photocopied documents, at least that we know of. Uh, but what you're seeing instead is a much more patient and deliberate campaign to target uh, the defense industrial base, which for, for programs like the F-35 are global. And so one of the ways in, uh, for example, is to target overseas suppliers uh, mm -hmm. where they may not have the same levels of cybersecurity standards uh, as the, the U.S. defense industrial base might. So, so the, the challenge and the opportunity, of course, in, in these you know, global type contracts for uh, Joint Strike Fighter is that you can bring in allies and develop you know, uh, technology with your partners. That's the kind of headline, the pablum part of it. But the reality is, of course, this dark side to it, which is that's just other uh, set of attack surfaces for a very determined adversary like China. So the J-20 and the J-31 are certainly you know, influenced by those attacks, not just on U.S. defense infrastructure, but also our allies. Yes, I've seen some reporting that they hacked into some Australian systems, uh, perhaps European uh, weapon systems. And, and Turkey too. Uh, you know, this is uh, goes back to my old life at the at the Journal and reporting on one of the initial you know kind of revelations in the public sense that this was happening. And I, I think what's really important to say is is that it's not always even about hacking into the most classified secrets because many of those are harder targets. But there's quite a bit of information that you can hive off that you can siphon away that relates to aspects of aircraft. And what is different about these jet designs than past ones is that they're stealth aircraft. So there, there's a lot of engineering that has to go into really mundane details, a landing gear door you know, cover or how the cockpit canopy is shaped. All those uh, attributes of the jet help it evade you know, radar detection. And, and there's another aspect too, which I think is really important to think about, which is the, you know, how do you keep these jets in the air, the sustainment, right? This is also, at least in an initial uh, you know, idea was to be globalized as well. And of course that's run into a lot of hurdles. Um, among them IP, among them security. And so I think it's important to think about what makes a fifth generation jet, you know, that kind of a futuristic Top Gun aircraft. It's not just that it looks cool, right? But it has all these kind of technologies and, and systems under the surface. To be fair, we don't know how well China has actually copied those systems. And in many cases, you could actually point to our own procurement and defense industrial base and say, 
if they're copying us, well, they're actually going to be imitating a lot of the problems that we have. And maybe that's that's going to help us. In the end. Yeah, that made me think about all the cost overruns of the F-35, it was, which was dubbed long ago as the plane that ate the Pentagon because it chewed up so much of the budget. So do you think China is saving a lot of money by stealing these designs and avoiding cost overruns that we had with the F-35? What's your guess? I think you could make the case. I don't have the, the clear answer to that. I think you can make the case that they can shortcut development timelines. But the F-35 also is that cautionary tale of just how hard it is to get an aircraft that you think is going to evolve one way and see it in reality into another. You know, just getting an aircraft to have all the G-Wiz features, the stealth electronic warfare. Um, you know, an F-22, you know, the kind of precursor to the F-35 requires so much painting and maintenance to its stealthy skin that it's really hard to have it actually fly as a stealthy jet. So it's a very complex matter, you know, of, of putting these aircraft in the air. It's one thing to put them in a splashy video that looks like a, a Chinese or PLA rendition of Top Gun, but it's another to really have them be a, you know, an effective fighting, fighting force in the Pacific. Do you think we have a grip on their weaknesses? and how they failed to master some of our technologies? Do you think our own espionage has got a good grip on um, how, how well they've pulled this off? That's an excellent question. And you know we've actually seen some in the public reporting on this, some setbacks in US uh, intelligence efforts inside China. New York Times had a big expose a few years ago that revealed the catastrophic uh, exposure of you know, covert communications. Uh, it's important, I, I think, to also see it in the larger context as well. You know, the the one of the more recent videos that I'd watched that that showed, you know, the fourth and fifth generation jets of China hinted uh, at this H-20 uh, kind of stealth batwing fighter that looks like a copy of our B-2 Spirit and the new B-21 Raider. And, and I started thinking about that in one way, which is, oh, my gosh, they've copied yet another flagship program. However, the other aspect of it that seemed to be really interesting to think about and consider is that even if that aircraft isn't actually something that they plan to you know, do deep penetration strikes into the US with, that is an incredibly important training tool for the PLA Air Force if they can create a facsimile of our next generation bomber. Because for their fighter community and air defense community to be able to train against the very system that may one day be needed to penetrate Chinese airspace, that's a huge advantage. We don't, that as far as I know, have that same kind of light capability uh, to, to do so with a J-20 or a, or, a, or a J-31. And so some of it is, is like the framing and perspective. I mean, it feels a little bit, to be honest, like China keeps trolling us with these you know, defense industrial rollouts. They occupy a lot of our, our, uh, our imagination in terms of what they're thinking up next. But the reality is we consistently underestimate Chinese innovation and research and development potential, both in the private sector and in the defense space. And, and I think that's, that's a failure of imagination, to be honest. Let me ask you this. As you probably know, uh, in our espionage history, that we have several times seeded our technology exports with poison pills to the Soviet Union and Russia. We tried it with Iran. We know one case where it was a spectacular failure with trying to uh, put a poison pill in Iran's nuclear program. Do you have any idea the efforts to do that regarding China? And this would be, of course, deeply classified information. But do you have a feeling for it? I don't have any obviously knowledge of that, but I think about it like, what would I do if I was in that situation? And I think I would be thinking about the kinds of ways we assess our own vulnerabilities. So the the, the preeminence that the U.S. has in in uh, you know computer hardware like chips. Uh, obviously, a lot of chips come from overseas, strictly from you know Chinese sources, and we're worried about their their vulnerability to to kind of uh, zero day exploits. Um, but the other is that, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, Cold War context, or even in some of the more recent contexts, you know, in, in uh, centrifuges and such, 
um, messing with seismic equipment, et cetera, like in Iran, you know, software is so elemental to this next wave of weaponry, whether it's the fighters and bombers we're talking about or, uh, you know, quantum communications potentially 10 years out. So, so if you can kind of go back to that, that ability to um, essentially mess with an adversary at that software level, I think every nation if, is thinking about that, both how to do it and also how to defend against it. So, it, you know, every opportunity to do so in an offensive way to, for example, if you know the Chinese are going to steal a flight control system uh, for, you know, uh, a next generation drone, you know, do you let them do that and try to poison it? That would seem like a really sensible thing to do. Of course, the Chinese know that too, right? And so they're trying to figure that out while at the same time, they're also trying to poison our own. And, and you know, our, our, our latest AI, you know, artificial intelligence powered systems also have distinct and unique vulnerabilities, whether it's, you know, uh, what they call pixel spoofing, you know, to create data that essentially can uh, alter how an image is entered into a, a database and it may provoke a system to take a, a response like classifying a stop sign as a green light. Or it could be even more, uh, you know, nefarious than that, where researchers at the University of Washington a couple of years ago were able to take DNA data and essentially code it such that it introduced a virus into an AI classification system. So, so we're at this new frontier of espionage that I think is just fascinating. And so these fighters and and, and other aircraft we're seeing in many ways are the posters of, of what happens when the Chinese steal stuff from, you know, the U.S. and the West. But th- we're also at the dawn of this other era that's happening at the same time that, that also, of course, has a bearing on that. It's, it's really interesting. What we need is another Mad Magazine to work as spy versus spy storylines in this new era of technology theft. Is there anything the Chinese have that we want to steal? I would say the Chinese advances in hypersonic systems. I would be really interested in that if I were in the U.S. intelligence community because they have had a very high tempo of testing. It's totally unclear how actually effective they are. But I think that's a really critical technology, at least it's deemed by the US for conventional and of course nuclear type weapons. And if the Chinese do have an advantage on that, especially if they can really enter into an era where they have precise uh, hypersonic missiles that can you know, reach long ranges, but target you know, at a very, very kind of narrow uh, sort of center, um, that, that's, that's very problematic, especially as we try to figure out how to base our, our conventional forces in, in, you know, in their backyard, so to speak. So that would be one area for sure. The other would be in and around, I think, quantum computing systems, because uh, if you wake up in a world where quantum decryption or, or encryption for that matter is a real thing, uh, that is a before and an after moment, a strategic level paradigm shift. And so I would think a huge amount of energy should be going into that. I hope it is, hmm. uh, because those are those are technologies that we we, we will see fundamentally change the, the foundations of computing, you know, in the next probably two decades, two and a half decades. Quantum encryption, meaning uh, an ability to wrap our secrets in layers and layers and layers of secrecy. Yeah, one one way to think about it would be you'd be able to send a message that actually wouldn't be able to be ha- you know opened right and only that in any attempt to intercept a quantum encrypted message effectively destroys the integrity of the message and makes it useless in the in the digital sense. Similarly, a lot of our encryption technologies today uh, could be broken in you know fractions amount of time it would ordinarily take with with a quantum type system and you know there's efforts that people are making today to, to prepare for that moment and, and, and you know create deeper layers of encryption but fundamentally uh, if you think about how important digital data storage is throughout all this Western society uh, in China for that matter uh, it's it's very destabilizing I mean you know there is a there's a flip side to this which I think as someone who's all like me who's always kind of trying to consider the, the creative outlets and opportunities here you know 
that actual decryption capability would be really destabilizing inside China. You know, that's a regime that relies on secrecy uh, itself for social and political control. So, you know, there's a like with a lot of these technologies, a really interesting dual edge uh, to that to that sword. I think a lot of listeners would be just perplexed to understand how it is that China, not to mention Russia, could have any technological edge on us. I mean, we are the center of technological innovation. We have been historically, anyway. So how is it that, is there any simple answer to how the Chinese would get a leg up on us in technology? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, and I think historically is the right word that that traditional, uh, you know, way we thought about innovation in the U.S. is coming out of a, a, a relatively narrow, you know, set of sources, you know, FFRDCs, you know, federal research labs, defense contractors, big corporations, you know, that, that paradigm is inverted now. So, you know, many of the best ideas are coming from the private sector and a globalized private sector. So you're going to be now looking at the top talents in the world, you know, coming to the U.S. ideally to be able to, you know, make their fortunes in invention, invention of, of new systems. But, you know, we also, especially in the Trump administration, had a period where we sent out a signal to the world that we don't want the best and brightest. Uh, and that has huge strategic implications for the 2020s, whether people have realized it or not. Similarly, you know, China uh, has a long tradition in innovation and I think continuously has been discounted as, 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 a, comp as a nation that can produce companies, right, that can compete at the at the at the cutting edge uh, but we've seen in the online world and in ai that whether it's e-commerce or whether it's big database companies uh self-driving vehicles etc they are pushing the envelope in times uh, faster and farther than than any country in the us and europe and the, the last thing i would say and, and this is true with russia um, although they have a little bit different ai development paradigm from what i understand but china has made it a national level you know, uh, AI supremacy and uh, Xi Jinping level priority. And, you know, when you have a leader who personifies power uh, and in the Communist Party and beyond, like like he does right now, uh, in an almost Mao-like level, if he's making this a national priority, the rest of the country has to has to listen. And, and of course, there's great commercial incentive to do so in that, that very capitalistic communist nation. Yeah, it's a little scary, you have to say. Now, in the futuristic novel that you and Peter Singer wrote a couple of years ago, Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war, which I must say made my socks shrivel. It's, it's, a, it's a beach read, folks. You got to get it. I mean, it'll make your hair stand up straight. So um, you portrayed a conflict between the U.S. and China in which China scored some very quick early successes against the U.S. Navy. Do you, has anything happened to change your mind about that? I think a lot uh, of, that has happened since Ghost Fleet was published makes me more hopeful that, you know, our original intent was to, you know, sound the alarm that, you know, we were underestimating China's capability, and overestimating our over-reliance uh, on technology uh, and, and having a bit of strategic hubris uh, to kind of help folks in that 2015 timeframe refocus towards the Pacific in the in the kind of true military sense, uh, not just the pivot, but really thinking about what a war would look like. And, and also to consider the new actors, right? You know, how do groups like Anonymous or other non-state groups uh, enter into a big strategic conflict? But what we've seen on the U.S. side, I think, is really encouraging, which is, you know, many of the vulnerabilities that we tried to draw attention to, for example, the vulnerability of satellites to being attacked by Russian or Chinese uh, anti-satellite systems on Earth or in space, you know, we see new new paradigms uh, emerge and the military embrace them, small satellites, et cetera, that are more resilient 
uh, that can be lost. Uh, similarly, you know, you can spoof GPS now and units can still navigate because we are seeing a lot of investment in uh, what, you know, it's called precision navigation timing to allow without the GPS constellation, um, you know, aircraft to fly at high speed and still, you know, maintain where they are in a, in a combat environment, ground units, et cetera. And, and even down to the kind of like weapon level, right? So, so that, you know, particularly at the DARPA, you know, program uh, investment of the last few years, but Strategic Capabilities Office, um, you saw as well, you know, over the last few years, uh, a real commitment to, to thinking about the problems that a book like Ghost Fleet presents and how to how to address them. And, and you know, look, the Navy even had a Ghost Fleet, you know, program called Ghost Fleet about autonomous robotic ships, which was an important part of our, our, our U.S. offensive in that book. And so I take heart in that. You know, the, the challenges that said, though, um, remain big. I mean, getting AI to be normalized in, you know, the U.S. Uh, defense community is still a real challenge. We have a new you know, CDAO, new office that deals with uh, AI and data that I think is going to make a lot of inroads that um, the first generation of, of, of organizations in the U.S., uh, DOD, we're, we're trying to do. We're going to see, I think, more action on that, more investment. But the risk is, as I said, you know, Xi Jinping has made this a top level priority and that if we don't continue, I think, in the U.S. to think about the fusion of technology, but also just how do we change the system, the bureaucracy to allow it to, to flourish, then then the, the kind of, you know, future we talked about in Ghost Fleet, you know, has the potential still to occur, even if we make these other near-term steps. Oh, I'm, I'm going to seize on the optimistic notes you seeded in to your response and that all is not lost amid the welter of bad news we're facing domestically and, and internationally. So anyway, August Cole, thanks so much for spending time with us on Spy Talk. And I have a feeling that we're going to be back talking to you again in the future. And let's just hope that the uh, real life world doesn't unfold in the way that your book Ghost Fleet did, because... A war with China would be just catastrophic. Thanks for having me on. That was Jeff Stein with August Cole, co-author of Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. Cole is a non-resident senior fellow at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. He is also director of its Art of Future War project, which explores narrative fiction and visual media for insight into the future of conflict. Jeff, as mentioned, is on leave this week, but he did leave behind a message for our listeners. I'm going to be off for a little while on a medical leave, but uh, the show is going to be in the very good hands of Eugene, so take it away. The capable folks at the Spy Talk newsletter will be continuing to produce original intelligence-related content on Substack while Jeff is off. Subscribe to get their valuable insights and information. And leave our podcast a review. Positive reviews are particularly appreciated. And get in touch if there's a subject you'd like us to explore on future episodes. You can reach me on Twitter at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll do so again. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.